washed away by Jesus, how you can receive a new life in Jesus, even if it's in brown woolly trunks. And so that image of the brown woolly trunks were burned on my mind, but the gospel were preached. It was a lovely service. But have you ever been to a service that's so bad that you come away thinking that service actually did more harm than good? That meeting was toxic. Well, that's Paul's assessment of the gathered worship services at Corinth. Look how he opens his letter in verse, or this section of his letter in verse 17. He says, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Paul's saying, wow, your services are doing more harm than good. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it. The church at Corinth were a divided church. They were divided about who the favorite preacher was. They were divided about sexual ethics. They were divided about marriage. They were divided about the role of men and women. And this is the most serious division of all. Because Paul's making the point, if this problem carries on, it's best for the church to close down. What's the problem that Paul's addressing? It's behavior at the Lord's table. Now, we, we can call it different things. The Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion, whatever we call it. This is the greatest symbol of Christian unity that God's given to his church. In chapter 10, Paul makes the point, just like the bread is one bread, we're one body. When we, when we share communion, we're symbolizing our, our unity with Christ and with each other ever so important and yet in the church at Corinth the one thing that was supposed to symbolize unity was the one area of church that most clearly displayed disunity and division it's really serious and Paul urges them he says examine yourselves examine your practices because otherwise you're better off not having a service you're better off not meeting in fact either implicitly or explicitly Paul calls for the church at Corinth, and in turn it's us, to take six different looks at, especially as they gather for communion, but six different looks as they gather for worship. Now the first one's the longest one, but the first thing it encourages them to do, and I encourage us to do, is look around. We see that verse 17 to 22, look around. The first thing the Corinthian church are told to do as they gather is look around. Do it now. Have a, have a little look around you. Look to the side. Look behind you. Look, look. What do you see? We're different, aren't we? What do you notice? There, there are different, externally, there are differences. Some of you have got white skin. Some of you have got dark skin. Some of you are European. Some of you are African. Some of you are Asian. Some of you are young. Some of you are old. Less noticeable, and perhaps in our context, some of you are wealthy, some of you are doing okay, some of you will be really struggling. We're diverse, aren't we? We've got diverse needs. We've got diverse problems. We've got diverse blessings and abilities. And yet for all our diversity, as we come together, this table shows us that we're united. Black or white or European or Asian or African or rich or poor or old or young or healthy or on your last legs. 
This table reminds us Jesus has died to pay for our sins, and in doing so, he's made us righteous before God, and we're all equal in the sight of God, and he's united us to to God, and he's united us to one another as his body here on earth, the church. The greatest expression of unity we have as Christians is displayed when we share the Lord's Supper. And all that we're about to collapse in Corinth. Now, there's something we need to understand, I think. I don't think we do anything wrong when we share the Lord's Supper or communion. But there are things we do we don't need to do. And actually, we do the basics. Every church pretty much does the basics. It's not a telling off. But how the Lord's Supper was shared then versus how it's shared now would have looked a lot different. Almost certainly, when the Lord's Supper was shared then, it it was a supper. It wouldn't have been something that was done for 10 minutes before a worship service or as we're going to do it later for 10 minutes after a worship service. It was an actual meal. It would have looked more like one of our bring and share meals. They're not just eating bread and drinking wine. But I imagine this, that as they begin the fellowship meal, as they begin the bring and share, that one of the leaders stands up and everyone has some bread and they break bread and they give thanks to God for Christ's body broken for them. And then they crack on with the meal and they, they eat and they chat and they have fellowship and maybe they pray together. And then at the end of the meal, you know, they've had the soup or they've had the whatever, at the end of the meal they pass around a cup of wine. And they all drink and they thank Christ for his blood that was shed for them. That's the kind of thing that would have been happening at Corinth. That's the kind of thing, it, I, I don't know, I'm pushing the boat maybe. That would be nice for us to do occasionally, wouldn't it? Actually share the Lord's Supper as a meal. And when we see it like that, we can understand what Paul's getting at. Remember, this church had a mega diverse makeup. Outside of Jewish Christianity, remember this is a a Gentile church, this is a non-Jewish in the main church. Outside of Jewish Christianity, working people wouldn't have had the luxury of having a Sabbath. These meals and these worship services that have been either early in the morning, but more probably the the meal would have been later in the evening. Those who were wealthy, those those who didn't have to work on on a Sunday, they would have been able to get there in plenty of time. Those who've been working in the field or those who were converted slaves, they'd have arrived after they finished the duties. The meetings were held in people's homes. There were barely any church buildings. Where possible, they'd probably meet in a larger house. Whoever had one of the biggest houses in the church. But even so, there'd be limited space. You'd have the main dining area and then you'd have, like the, 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 they'd have courtyards outside or whatever. And because the church was so diverse, there'd be huge diversity in who came along, when they arrived, and what they brought. You can imagine, can't you, some of the wealthier people in the church. And they bring along their fillet mignon. And they bring some nice cheese and some freshly baked sourdough focaccia bread. And a lovely bottle of Chateau Neuf de Pape. And some of the slaves had come along and they've got a bit of bread with a little bit of jam on it. But we put it all together and we share it. It's a fellowship meal. And the meal was to signify unity. Though we are many, we're one body. But here's what's happening. 
Verse 20, Paul says, when they came together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. And what does Paul mean? That's exactly what they were doing. They were eating the Lord's Supper, but except Paul saying it was, it's not what you're doing. You might be doing that in name, but that's not what you're doing. This, this table is anything but a symbol of unity. Verse 19, he says, there are factions amongst you so that those who are approved will be recognized. There was a hierarchy there. Those who were somebodies got the best places. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus told about scampering for the best seats at the, at the feast. It's something that the Pharisees would have done. What does it say about human nature that within a couple of years of this church being planted, they're already acting like Pharisees? Ever so easy, isn't it, for religion to creep into a church? In the Roman world, when they had parties, they'd sit people and serve food in a way that reflected social order. And that had come into the church. What we're told is that they weren't waiting for one another. Those who got there first were taking the best food and going for it. I remember those slaves who've been working, and working or working in the field and they arrive at the last minute and they're probably the hungriest and all the good food's gone. Verse 21, some are hungry. And in verse 33, Paul has to remind them, wait for one another. Unbelievably, in verse 21, some of them are drunk at the communion table. That bloke who has brought his shat and earth to pap, he's swagged it all himself. One writer says they've turned the cross of Christ into a food fight. And Paul even has to say to him in verse 22, listen, you've got your own houses to eat and drink in. Paul's not saying you shouldn't be sharing the communion meal, but, but this communion meal was a simple meal. He's saying, look, if you want a slap-up meal, go to Miller and Carter's. If you, if you want an all-you-can-eat, go to a Toby Carvery. But this is a communion table. This is a Lord's Supper. This is a bring and share. And in verse 22, he says, you, you, you are pouring shame on those who have nothing. Imagine that we do have a bring and share. And we're starting them back up. And someone can't really afford to bring much. And they bring a loaf of bread from the whoopsie aisle in Asda. And we snigger at them as we see them put it on the table. And we don't share the waitrose lasagna we've brought. And that person sits in the corner with their piece of bread. We wouldn't countenance that at Holbrooks, would we? I don't think there's many of you that, that would countenance that. This great meal that was established to display the unity amongst God's people, all one body, it had come as a display of class and, and division. And Paul says, look around. Look at what you're doing. He's saying what, what you're doing makes it look like you despise the church of God. And it's sobering, but it's not personal, is it? Because we won't do that. It's sobering. What a terrible thing they did in Corinth, but... I'm glad we're not like that. We do not act like that at communion. We don't. And when we have a bring and share, what do we do? Pensioners first, kids second, rest of us third. If you can reach, give yourself a pat on the back. So how do we bring our divisions into church? Are there people in church that we snigger at? 
Are there people in church who we see, maybe not food-wise, but don't really have much to offer? Scroungers are here again. Are there people who, because we don't think they've got that much to offer, we don't really make an effort with them? Maybe there's people you've never even had a conversation with because you just can't be bothered. I remember years ago at the beginning of my ministry, it was suggested when we had a visiting speaker that we paid him extra because he was well known. Isn't that the same thing as saying to somebody, have a seat up here and we'll put them on a lower table? I remember 10 years or so ago, um, we took the youth group. I was pastor, but we took the youth group to a church about half an hour away. We arrived 45 minutes early before the evening was due to start, and everybody needed the toilet. So we piled into the church, everyone went to the toilet. I was wearing jeans and a hoodie, and the elder of the church who were leading the evening saw us all flooding into the toilets. He was really rude. He told us to get out, go and wait in the minibus. I couldn't believe what he was saying. Now, me now, I'd have put the kids in the minibus and gone and got a McDonald's with them and come home. But me then, I was a bit more timid. And so we went to the meeting. The next time I met the man, I was introduced to him as Pastor Ben. And he was lovely. He wanted to talk about ministry stories. He wanted to share experiences. And through gritted teeth, I did it. As we meet, maybe not as we meet to share the Lord's Supper, but as we meet to share the Lord's Supper, have a look around. Are there divisions between us? Are there things that need to be addressed or rebalanced? Have we got grudges? Do we look down on people? So that's the first look, look around, but it is the longest look because that's dealing with the main problem. After we've looked round, we're to look back. Paul actually gets on now to teach him what the Lord's table, that's what the Lord's table isn't about, this is what the Lord's table is about. Look back, look back in remembrance, verse 23 to 25. Do we know when we share the Lord's Supper together, what we're remembering when we share it? And we say, yeah, yeah, of course we do. The bread represents his body, the, the wine represents its blood, but it's all familiar, isn't it? Now, I, don't, I do not think that the Lord's table, communion, the Lord's supper, I don't think it's just a religious ritual. Of course I don't. But if I'm honest, it does feel like it sometimes, doesn't it? Not because we're making it that way. It's just because it's we do it so often. And Paul says, when we come to share the Lord's table, look back. And he says, look back to the night when Jesus was betrayed. Now, it's unusual that. Why does Paul use the word betrayed? Because all, if, if all that Paul's trying to do is provide a date to look back to, it would have been simpler for him to say the night before Jesus was crucified. But he doesn't say the night before Jesus was crucified. He says the night that Jesus was betrayed. And, and even more than that, we don't pick this up in English but Paul uses wordplay. In Greek, the word that Paul uses, when Paul says, I have delivered to you, is the same word in Greek as betrayed. So what's Paul saying is this. I'm delivering to you what Jesus did on the night he was delivered. An even better rendering is this. I'm handing over to you 
what Jesus did when he was handed over for you. And what's Paul getting at? He's saying this. Listen, look back. When you share this supper, look back and remember this. Jesus was served up for you. As we take this bread and as we drink of this wine, as, as, we, as people serve it to you this morning, remember Jesus was served up for you. They're the most famous words in the communion, aren't they? We read in verse 24 to 25 every single time we share communion. This is his body broken for me. This is his blood shed for me. Why was his body broken? Why was his blood shed? Verse 24, verse 25, for you. Jesus was delivered. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was handed over. Jesus was served up for you. It's personal. It's not a ritual. It's a visual reminder. Every time we come together, when we share the Lord's Supper, it's a visual reminder. Look back and remember it's your sin and my sin that put Jesus on the cross. He was delivered up for your sin. He was served up because of your sin. See, there's no room for pride, is there? There's no room for hierarchy when we understand that the Son of God's hanging on the cross because of my sin. But it is glorious. It's a reminder as well, this, this table isn't for good people. It's a table for sinners. Repentant sinners, but it's a table for sinners. The offer of this table, by, by reminding them of, of his betrayal, Paul's reminder that the offer of this table were made to Judas. Jesus served communion to Judas. Judas took it. Jesus allowed it. That doesn't mean we, that we should just let unsaved people take communion. We'll see that in a minute. But the Lord's table is a visual reminder that Jesus was delivered for our sins. It's not our sin that stops us taking communion. We look back and see Jesus' death for sinners. And you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner, and he's been delivered up for us. Forget Judas for a minute. This was a table for Peter, because Peter betrayed Jesus. And this was a table for the other ten who, who bottled it and legged it, and they betrayed Jesus when he was arrested. And we look back and we see that this table's for sinners. Jesus was delivered up for sinners. In my place, condemned he stood. There's no room for pride, is there, when we think like that? No room for me thinking, well, I'm better than Steve, and I'm better than Josh, and I'm better than Paul. We can't be proud, and we can't be pompous, and we can't feel elevated when we look back, and this table reminds us of Jesus hanging naked and filthy and bloody on the cross instead of us, because that's what we deserve. But on the flip side, how beautiful is it? I'm a filthy person. My, my, my sin comes back to me every day and makes me feel guilty. How can I ever be accepted by a holy and perfect God? Well, we look at the, this table and it says, we can do it because Jesus has been delivered. He's, he's taken my place. And so Paul says, when we come to the Lord's table, don't just look around, look back. Look back at what Jesus has done for you. Third look is to look up. Look up in thanks, verse 24 to 25. Every time we see this table set out, we look up and we give thanks. Paul says in verse 24, before Jesus broke the bread, he gave thanks. The word for that is Eucharist. You might have heard that in the Church of England or something like that. The Eucharist. It just means giving thanks to God for his grace. Every single time we gather, communion table or not, but every time we gather, we look up and we say, thank you, God, for serving up Jesus for us. 
keeps us humble, it keeps us grateful. Thank you, God. Look round, look back, look up, look forward. Whenever we come to this table, we look forward, verse 26, to Jesus' return. Every time we share the Lord's Supper, we're looking forward to the day that Jesus is coming back. There are churches where only baptized members are allowed to be present in the communion service. I wouldn't divide over that. I wouldn't not go to a church that does that. We're not saying that unbelieving people should take communion, but in this church, we have a communion service that's open. Paul says in verse 26, when we share the Lord's Supper together, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What what does Paul mean by that? Firstly, a couple of things. It it galvanizes us Christians because every time we share the Lord's Supper, remember Jesus is coming back. We won't share communion in heaven. Certainly not in this form. We won't share. I think we'll eat and we'll have have suppers. I don't think we'll share communion in in heaven because we're told to do this until he comes. We share the Lord's Supper until he comes. Jesus is coming again. Everything's going to be made new. Be comforted. But Paul says, what, why are we doing this? Paul says, it's a proclamation. We proclaim, he says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We, it's, it's, it's the same word the New Testament uses for preach. We preach the Lord's death until he comes. When we share communion in 15 minutes, I'm not physically preaching, but the table preaches to us, Jesus is coming back. Whenever we break bread, we preach the gospel. It's a visual reminder. Jesus has died. Jesus is coming. I don't know if you remember. I remember Chris sharing his testimony a couple of years ago. And one of the things that he said convicted him that he needed to be right with God was sitting in the communion service at Holbrooks and particularly the words that Gary used to say every time before we, before we took communion out. It's only for believers. And as he sat and as he, as he watched the communion table preached to him. The, the communion table preached how this is only a, for, for people who trust in Jesus and it convicted him that he wasn't right with Jesus and as he listened and as he watched, he was reminded every couple of weeks that Jesus was coming back, but not for him. See, this table's a, a proclamation. Jesus Christ has died for sinners who trust in him and Jesus Christ is coming back and we need to be ready. And do you realize that this morning? Are you ready? As you watch this service, are you ready for Jesus coming back? Have you asked him to forgive your sins? As we share communion in a bit, stay in. And if you know that you're not a Christian, if you know that you're not saved, watch. And understand Jesus is coming back and you're not ready. And if you are saved, look forward. Because he's coming back for you. So look round. Look Back, look up, look forward, look inwards, number five. Look inwards at yourself, verse 27 to 29. These are, I think, the most terrifying words of the communion service for lots of people. Let me read them to you. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Paul saying, look, before we share the Lord's Supper, 
look inwards. Look, look at yourself, examine yourself before you eat this bread and drink this cup. Look inside yourself. What does, what does Paul mean in verse 27 when he talks about drinking the cup in an unworthy manner? I don't know about you, maybe in the past, I felt like this. Maybe even now, you're sat and you feel terrified to take communion because you know you're unworthy. Maybe you've had an absolutely rubbish week. Maybe you come here this morning and you've fallen out with your wife or husband at home and you're still falling out. Maybe this week you've lost your temper. Maybe this week you've committed a sin. Maybe this week you've got drunk. Maybe this week you've done something and you feel unworthy. That's healthy to feel like that. We, you know, when we feel like we should repent. But that's not what Paul's getting at. Paul doesn't warn against taking communion with unworthy feelings. Or even as being unworthy. Paul doesn't talk about don't take communion if you're an unworthy person. If this table was about who's worthy, it'd be the shortest meal ever. Because none of us would have it. That's the whole point of the Lord's table, to remind us none of us are worthy. We're completely, utterly unworthy, but Jesus Christ was handed over for us. The most unworthy manner you could possibly ever approach the Lord's table is to think I'm worthy to be here. I've had a good week. That's what the problem is at Corinth. At Corinth, they thought they had a right, they had a standing in this table because of the status. Paul said that's the most unworthy way you can ever take communion to think that you deserve something. The second most unworthy way to take the Lord's Supper is to take it, thanking, looking up and thanking God for his mercy to us, but looking round and being at odds with other people. Looking up at, 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 and thanking God for his mercy and looking back and thanking God for, for forgiving your sin and for Jesus being handed over for you, and yet knowingly, deliberately embracing sin. I used to play football with a load of lads. And they weren't bad lads in the sense of terrible lads, but were very, very worldly. And their whole thing was they'd go to communion on Friday, take communion, and then Saturday through to the next Friday, they had a clean slate to do what they want, and it were all dealt with the next Friday. That's an unworthy manner. It's an unworthy manner if we're knowingly comfortable being at odds with someone else, but praising God for our peace with him. Knowingly abusing our position, knowingly looking down on others, knowingly living one way all week and putting a mask on on Sunday. That's unworthy. We're great, aren't we, at looking at and identifying sin in other people. I'm brilliant at that. I could probably go around the room and most of you, I could point out things that are wrong with you. Don't do it to me, but I could do it to you. Because we're master spec spotters. But we're not called to be master spec spotters. Jesus says we're to be log spotters in our own eyes. Examine yourself. Because when we've examined ourselves, we can see better to examine others. This is not a congratulations meal for people who deserve it. This is a, a sustaining meal for people who are sinful and repentant. Paul talks in verse 29. 
about eating and drinking judgment on yourself because you're not discerning the Lord's body. That's terrifying, isn't it? What does it mean? It doesn't mean Jesus' physical body. The context makes it clear. Paul's talking about people. We're the body of Christ on earth. Just like there's one bread, there's one body here on earth. How can we claim to have union with Christ in heaven if we don't have it with his people on earth? For the Corinthians, how on earth can can the Corinthians expect to claim union with Christ when they're knowingly excluding people who make up his body on earth? When they're knowingly allowing poor people to go hungry so they can eat? When they're knowingly sniggering about people? Paul says, examine yourself. I think it's a serious call. Before we share communion in a few minutes, examine yourself. Am I taking this? Not, not am I taking this as a good person. Am I taking this in a right manner? Am I taking this as a repentant sinner? Or am I proud? Am I harboring resentment against another brother or sister? Do I think I'm better than somebody in here? If that's the case, do not take it. I think we pass over that too comfortably. It might be that you you get to know some things that are going on in the church. Or you get to know some things that have been said to you about somebody else. Or things that have been said about you by somebody else. And we look around and we think, how dare they take communion? It's a frightening thing. How dare they be taking communion? But ultimately, we're not called to look at them. We're called to look at ourselves. And God calls them to look at themselves. It's getting harder to remember now, isn't it? Look around. Look back. Look up. Look forwards. Look inwards. Finally, look out. Look out in judgment, verse 29 to 32. Not look out as in look outwards. Look out as in beware. I think verse 30 to 32 are two of the most frightening verses in the New Testament. Paul says, for this reason, because you've been treating each other like this, because you've not been treating this Lord's table with respect, because you've been examining other people when you should have been examining yourselves, because of this, lots of you are sick and some of you sleep. Because if you judged yourself, you won't be judged. God's dealing with you because you haven't examined yourself. You think, wow, what, what, what is Paul saying? What we're not saying is this. We're not saying that everybody who gets sick gets sick because they've committed a specific sin. We're not saying that. But what we are saying is this. One of the ways that God judges and deals with unrepented sin in Christians, when we won't look at ourselves, when we won't examine ourselves, when we won't confess and repent of our sin as Christians, one of the ways that God does that is he makes us poorly. And some Christians he even kills. What? God, God puts to death Christians? Well, yeah, because he'd rather lose this life than as lose the next. That's what James means. You know when James says, call for the elders of the church to pray over the person who's sick, and if they've sinned, it shall be forgiven of them. Sleep is how death's described for believers. 
So serious is God about how we treat his body, the church, that if we continue in that vein, if we continue to take communion harboring sin, if we continue to, to refuse to repent of something we know is wrong, we won't lose our salvation. God will not lose us. But we might lose our lives. I might have told you this story before. I can't say for certain, but 30-odd years ago, a man in the church that I was brought up in, he was involved in unrepented, serious sin with a woman. I'm convinced he was a believer. My dad is convinced he was a believer. And I remember my dad going to see him and other people going to see him. My dad didn't tell me this till years later, pleading with him to give up this sin, pleading with him to repent. But he couldn't let it go. He wouldn't let it go. He was the fittest, strongest bloke in the church by a mile. And within a year, he died as a cripple. I can't say for certain, but that's never left me. I think that's scary. I wonder how many people we have known who've gone to be with the Lord early because God's taken them to avoid greater judgment. Don't start analyzing everyone who's died. But it's serious, isn't it? Don Carson tells a story about a pastor who taught him in seminary. And back in the 1930s, this, this pastor who taught him in seminary, he was a young pastor. It was his first church. And, and it was a, a, a well-established, it was a bit like this. It was a well-established church. It had all the right whatevers. And when he'd been there a short time, he thought, this church is a right mess. It's full of division. It's full of one-upmanship. It's full of pride. It's religious. It's, it's crippling. And, and, and there were 200 members in this church. And he, he said he prayed and he wept every day for three months. And he prayed the same prayer. Lord, please clean up this church. Every day he go on his knees. Every day he prayed, Lord, please clean up this church. And he prayed it for three months solid. Lord, please clean up this church. And that year he did 38 funerals for members. And then the year after, he baptized over 100. Because God answered his prayer, he cleaned up the church. Now, I'm not suggesting we should pray that. It's a good prayer, clean up the church. It's a scary one. But as we close, I think we should pray this. And I'll ask you to pray this with me now. Lord, please cause me to look around and think of others. Lord, please help me to look back and remember the awfulness of my sin and how Jesus was handed over for me. Lord, help me to look up and always be thankful that you've saved me. Lord, help me to look forward. Help me to live to proclaim that Jesus is coming back. Lord, help me to look inward and examine my own life and my own motives. Lord, help me to look out. Cause me to watch my life. Cause me to hate sin. Cause me to run from sin. Cause me to repent of sin. And Lord, every time I see this table, cause me to remember these things until you come again. Amen. Well, we are going to share communion in just a couple of minutes it will be a short service but as we do that we remember 
what Jesus has done for us. We're going to sing as we close, and then we'll probably sing it again at the end of communion. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us, and we remember. Let's stand and sing.
Worthy. 